0: Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com.
1: What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast, your home for all things outdoors in the Badger State. I'm your host, Josh Raley, and today I'm talking with Sam Billhorn, owner of Whitetail Partners, about managing your land for whitetail hunting. Managing properties for whitetails is about much more than just planting some food plots, maybe dropping in a couple of water holes and hanging up your tree stands and hoping that the deer walk by. There are a lot of things to take into consideration, like hunter access, low-impact stand sites, travel routes, depth of cover... Uh, All kinds of things, and uh, that's what Sam and I get into talking about today. We hit on a couple of really popular topics these days, like uh, food plots, like water holes, like mock scrapes. We also talk a bit about hinge cutting, which depending on what side of the aisle you're on, uh, a lot of folks find hinge cutting to be a really, really effective tool. And a lot of folks say that hinge cutting really has no place in the whitetail management world. And so Sam and I dive into that a little bit. We talk about the pros and cons and we talk about more specifically how to use hinge cutting effectively. Oftentimes a lot of guys just get into their property and they start hacking things down and next thing you know, they don't get the return out of their work like they'd hoped for. And uh, Sam gives a couple of helpful tips for how to, how to make that happen, how to make hinge cuts uh, work for you on your property. If you're interested in buying hunting land, but not sure uh, that the property you're looking for is right for you, uh, if you're interested in having uh, better quality habitat for the animals that call your land home, if you're interested in just having a fully designed whitetail setup on your property, this podcast episode is for you. Sam is a, uh, an engineer by trade, and so he thinks about this stuff. On, on a whole different level. Uh, getting to connect with Sam was, was incredible. Uh, I feel like we just barely scratched the surface here with a lot of these topics. But uh, yeah, I think this is one of the better conversations that I've gotten to have. So super thankful to Sam for coming on. Looking forward to connecting with him again. You can find more from Sam and Whitetail Partners at www.whitetailpartners.com and on Instagram at whitetailpartners. Now, before we jump into the episode, I do want to let you know this episode is brought to you by Overwatch Outdoors, makers of the Transformer and Orion Tree Saddles. If you haven't tried a saddle yet, you need to. In my opinion, the, uh, the saddles from Overwatch Outdoors, both the Orion and the Transformer, are some of the best saddles on the market. I spent some time in my Orion over the weekend getting some shooting practice in, and let me tell you, I could not find an uncomfortable position in this saddle. The saddle is awesome. If you want to try one out or have questions, head over to overwatchoutdoors.net. Reach out to Jamie. His contact info is on the website. You can hit him up. He'll answer any questions that you have, and he'll get you pointed in the right direction. Now, with all that out of the way, let's jump right into the episode with Sam Billhorn. All right, joining me today for this episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast is Sam Billhorn with Whitetail Partners. How's it going, Sam?
2: Great. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, I'm glad to have you here. It's not every day I get to do an in-person podcast i do a lot over zoom i do a lot over the phone but uh and this is the first one i've ever done in my home
2: well it's it's nice to be here nice to nice to be in person that's great
1: that's right yeah it's i feel like we're going to get a lot more natural conversation hopefully it it you know zoom works pretty well i have a really hard time interviewing people over the phone though Mm -hmm. like it just i i cut them off a lot because i don't know when they're done because i can't tell based on their face or their hands like whether they're done with their answer or not, so yeah. yeah you
2: miss pieces. That's right,
1: sure. absolutely. So glad to have you here in my uh, podcast studio slash kids playroom as we look at the toy kitchen and the bouncy house uh, piled up over there in the corner. But uh, Sam, as we get started here, why don't you tell us a little bit about you, uh, a little bit about Whitetail Partners, how, how all, of the, all of this works, sort of what are the services that you provide?
2: Sure. Well, thanks again. And uh, yeah, Whitetail Partners, I've... Uh, it's been a company I've developed over the last uh, two or three years here after really a, a lifetime of hunting and enjoying being outside and uh, in the, um, you know, working on deer habitat. I uh, probably started five, ten years ago really diving in and learning so much and buying property ourselves uh, with a couple of my brothers and enjoying uh, that process of really being able to control and develop that property for whitetails. And taking all those things I've learned and the experience that I've had started helping out buddies and uh, friends of friends and eventually uh, started helping all kinds of people. And, and that's just how a lot of businesses get going and um, really been enjoying that. Uh, you know, wh- what I do is help people with their properties. I say that very generically because that can take on uh, a lot of different forms. Uh, the you know the best uh, way to describe it that I do is generally meeting up with people on their land and helping them look at how they're hunting it. Sometimes it's people that have just bought the land. You know, they're getting set up for the first time. They're uh, diving in and making sure that they're putting things where they need to put them for the uh, for the property. Um, sometimes it's people that have had land a long time. We're looking at how they've hunted it, the improvements they've already made, and some of the successes and failures and all those things. Uh, trying to analyze that and, and make a new game plan for them. Uh, then I focus on drawing it up and uh, giving them a plan for the future of how to move forward with their land. So that's more on the habitat planning side. Also help people uh, buy land. So that's, uh, you know, they're going out and, that's you know, I'm not, I'm not a realtor. I'm not uh, involved in the purchase, but just advising them on what makes a good property. And, you know, I've developed a pretty extensive list of the, the things I'm looking for in a property and try to help them be successful and uh, find one that's a good fit for them. So that and um, a variety of other services, just helping people, on their properties, sometimes going and working with them on their land and showing them how to do a few of these type of improvements. Um, not a land management company, not helping them, you know, putting installing food plots and things like that, but just, uh, trying to help them out and, uh, you know, let them be more successful for the next season.
1: Man, that's great. So this, how long have you been doing this again?
2: Uh, this is my third season of, of with the company.
1: Okay. Yep. And that, that's great. That's great. They, one of the biggest, uh, questions or most most asked questions that we get through uh, through our Instagram page is for someone like yourself to come on and talk about a piece of property. I think you know guys who are, are looking at making that investment or have just made that investment of buying their first piece of land, they want to make sure that they get it right, mm-hmm. right Like they want to make sure that they're getting everything out of it that they can. And I think that I think that's really, really great. Uh, I, I think it's really important though, to start out well. And I love that service that you just talked about where you go out with guys and you'll help them evaluate a property, mm-hmm. whether or not it's the right property for them. Um, I know there are other companies that do similar things. There are, there are real estate companies that will kind of vet a property for you. And if it's not a good fit for their particular niche, let's say, they're probably not going to list that property as part of what they do. Uh, all of that said, oftentimes a realtor is more interested in you buying the property than in how you're going to manage that property for whitetails
2: that's right their their interest in general is is the sale i mean they want it to be a successful uh, connection for that client they, they aren't just uh, going to push every property just like you say on and, and trying to make the right fit but you know what i'm looking at is truly a um from the owner's perspective you know get to know them learn what they want from a property learn the things that how they're going to use it because you know, the first thing we start off with is why, you know, why do you want to own this property? And the big picture things of of uh, not just hunting, which we'll get to that, but, you know, what else do you want to do with the land? Who is it for? Are you going to have your family there? How far do you want it to be away? Um, you know, what does that do to your current lifestyle and, and those sort of things? Because for any property or any project or hobby or whatever you want to call it to be successful, it, it's got to work with the rest of your life. And that's why we always start with, you know, the, the whys of what you want to do here and making sure we get that right. Because I have seen people fail on, you know, stretching their limit. Oh, I can, I want to, I can drive two hours, I'll, that that one at three is, you know, I can do that because it's a little bit further, but it's the right property. But that becomes a burden over time. And th- and keeping that right perspective right away is is important.
1: Yeah. What are some of those why's that people come to you with? Like I, I imagine one of the things I love about being here in Wisconsin is uh, people take recreation and recreational land so seriously. Mm-hmm. Very few people that I know are one dimensional. Now, whitetails do seem to rule the day, uh, obviously. But at the same time, guys want to get as much out of their property as they can. And that often extends far beyond just enjoying it for whitetail hunting. Mm -hmm. What are some of the whys that people bring to you when they say, I want to buy this piece of property, or I'm I'm looking to buy a piece of property. And you say, okay, why, what are you looking for? Mm -hmm. What's the list that you're getting?
2: Yeah. So, you know, it starts with their life, with what they have going on with perhaps it's family or even grandkids. You know, I love talking with uh, folks that maybe they're nearing retirement, they have some grandkids. They want to introduce them to the outdoors, and um, you know that that starts off in that process of the type of setups we'll have for them are going to be very different than the types of setups we're going to have for say that you know diehard twenty five year old bow hunter, you know, and, and we want to make sure that uh, that that's a important fit for them as we look at the at the situation uh, to set up. Also, it could be you know maybe it's something also in another hobby or area they want to be by. It's Part of that process is acknowledging like, hey, I want to be close to, you know, or within an hour of this town, whatever that is, because of family or because of other recreation or other interests. So, you know, tying it into that. Um, but then also it's uh, maybe it's a, a desire to have a cabin or, you know, some of these other things that people look for in land. Uh, but it could also just be, you know, I want to have something that I can more easily turn around. I want something that I can, you know, within five years, I can have a great uh, set up and not have it be something that I'm working on or waiting for things for the next 30 years to grow or whatever that process might be.
1: Man, that's great. Uh, I, there's a lot that goes into that. And I, I mentioned before in a previous episode, one of my uh, biggest fears as as my family and I have considered and looked at buying land is that whole piece of I'm afraid to make this investment and it not turn out to be what I want it to be for mm-hmm. it to, it's not going to meet my wise, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to get a year or two into it. And it turns out my family can't uh, enjoy it for, for what, what it is. So um, tell me a little bit about choosing the right property for me. And I, I just want to give you a case study. And, and part of this is greedy. So I'm getting you for no, free. Great. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a young guy, mid thirties. I've got three young kids, seven, five, and three years old. I want a property within, uh, an hour, maybe maybe 45 minutes of the larger city that we are close to right now as we're mm-hmm. recording this podcast. Mm-hmm. I keep it kind of low-key like that because I have some really good public hunting areas, and I don't want people to know where they're at. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> good, plan. good plan. So um, I, I want to buy a piece of property. I want to buy a, a sizable enough piece of property where I can provide really, really great deer hunting mm-hmm. on the piece. But obviously, I want to keep it smaller for my budget. I want it to be budget friendly. Mm -hmm. I want to build a house on it one day in the next 10 years, let's say. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want it to hunt big enough for me, my three kids, my wife, maybe a buddy here and there. Mm -hmm. So what else are you going to ask me?
2: Where are you going to point me? Sure. So as you spoke, you, you hit on maybe six or eight things that I would be highlighting on my list. So I have a, okay. I have a 60 point checklist that I go through with guys. Holy smokes. Okay, yeah. And and so, I mean, it, it it can take two hours to just talk about one piece of ground. Wow. So uh, in, you know, a couple minutes, I'll try and summarize here, but you get <laughs> the point of where I'm driving at is like, this is a, uh, this is, you know, a longer conversation on those subjects. Yep. But what I would say is this is um, each of those things carries with it a potential maybe location or also size. So there's some location and size things I'm considering. Part of that would be maybe breaking down your budget a little bit. And then maybe specifically, if, if you're that tight within, let's say, an hour, 45 minutes, we can almost start to maybe even look at some areas that would be logical because of the type of ground and typically what that sells for. I mean, ground is going to be so wide ranging depending on if it's product, you know, productive ag ground or if it's... Uh, timber or if it's lowland whatever there's going to be a variety of different things so maybe there's you know introducing you to some types of ground that maybe you know if it's on the budget minded side is 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 you maybe didn't think about as deer habitat as much as you would typically think of in this area you know like we could go uh east or southeast of here a little bit and and maybe find some of those areas that are going to have some more lowlands mixed in more diversity and some of that yep um and you know, getting back to the kids and family side and all that, you know, because one of the things I look at is a little bit further down on the list as far as evaluating a property for hunting for whitetails, but I say specifically for kids, and, and this is one I loved unpack because I got three little ones myself, is access and quality hmm. easy hunting setups. You know, yep. a lot of these yep. a lot of these uh, designs that I'm going to do for that uh, call it young generation of hunters or seniors too, is trying to find great access multiple sides and be able to get to uh, those hunting locations easily. Um, you, you know, maybe they're blinds, they still can be tree stands, but uh, se- uh, simple setups that are repeatable, maybe you can work on a variety of winds in those locations. So that's getting into some of the specifics on the hunting side, but um, you know, access is going to always be huge. And I would say if if we're looking more budget minded, I'm always going to, I'm always going to push people maybe to go a little bit smaller so that you're leaving room in the budget for other things. You're leaving room for those improvements, you know, just like buying land to build a house, you're going to give yourself opportunity to uh, not, you know, day one, put yourself in a tight spot for all those other things you want to do with the land, you know, and, and, and that's some of the things that we would consider as we break that down. Yeah. All right. So as we're, we're picking this piece of property, does it
1: matter? I've heard a lot of people talk about, you know, they would prefer a large square property rather than a long skinny property. Is it that simple or is there a lot more that goes into it? I can, I think I can tell by your face, there's a lot more that goes into it than well, that.
2: Well, sure there is, but I would say it this way is that as you look at the at a property, especially one that's going to be, say it generally smaller in size, um, you know, maybe it's, 40, 60, 80 acres or or less, okay? If it's generally smaller, you're going to be looking beyond your property lines. You know, a lot of evaluating a property isn't just isolating it, cutting it out, and saying, here's this, whatever, 40-acre property, and and just looking within that square or rectangle, whatever your shape is. Anyway, you look at that and you say, what's beyond me? Because as we um, look at what's around that property, it may make that decision easier because you're gonna say, because of the shape of this, I'm capturing that many more uh, movements, for example. Mm-hmm. And this is getting into some hunting uh, specifics, but for, for example, in hill country, the top of drainages, so you have these um, top ag fields and low ag fields, and in between you have timber. And along uh, through that timber, you're gonna have uh, points of turns in the hills and where the drainages are very heavy and steep, okay? and at the top of those drainages is one of the best hunting locations that you're going to have in in that type of setup Mm. okay and depending on how that property sets if you grab let's say you have a top access property you have a a property that's on the ridge or the the top and you're grabbing both sides of that ridge those movements you might capture a lot of the deer movement for the area because of the shape of that property you cover you know cutting those areas off that the neighbors aren't then able to hunt and whereas if you had, for example, a block of timber and you didn't grab either end of that drainage, you're, you're not going to have that movement that you might've otherwise had. So a lot of it's looking at not so much the shape, but what does that area cover wow. as, as well as what's around it, man. Okay. So
1: definitely not just looking for a specific shape, man. There's a lot more that goes into it. I hadn't even, I hadn't even thought about situations like that, where if you just, you just miss the travel routes with your specific piece of property, mm-hmm. uh, that, boy. Well, and,
2: and, and then roads too, we didn't even talk, we talked about access, but also specifically roads, where are those roads coming in at? Because, you know, if you could, I've had properties where people just have a road that just touches a corner of a property and it's like, that's a, that's dynamite because you have, you know, guaranteed public access or excuse me, your personal access to that from the public roadway. And, you know, that's, a, you gained a whole nother point of entry. Um, by doing that, one of the other things we look at, and this is getting in, you know, within access, I probably have half a dozen bullet points, but, um, you know, talking about other areas to get into your property could be a negotiating an easement. You know, if you're buying a property, if you're buying a, a piece of property that a larger farm is sectioning off, you might be able to work with them to get, uh, to get an easement, even just walk in from their property into yours. And that is worth so much to the hunting aspect, uh, that makes that hunting, that, that hunting property, uh, hunt that much larger. Sure. let let's jump into that a little bit then. Um,
1: you know, obviously we could, we could run into one topic and take it, you know, for the, for the entire duration of the time that we have. But, but I want to talk a little bit about some of the, the key essentials of setting up a great whitetail property and, and maybe, um, Maybe we use a worst case scenario a little bit. Maybe we, maybe I, I come to you and I've bought a, a 60 piece, right? Like I bought a, I bought 60 acres and I bring it to you and you look at it and you're like, oof, I would not have recommended that this gentleman buy a this piece of property, right? Yeah. Like, so familiar place for you. Good, good. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe I did buy a piece out in, uh, in Hill Country where I just, I don't have the movement. I've got wide open timber everywhere. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I bought uh, a piece uh, southeast of here, let's say, and it's all marsh. Mm -hmm. And it's just not real clear what I can Mm -hmm. do with some of that. What are some of those essentials that you're going to say you've got to get this on your property if you're going to even start to
2: transform it? Mm -hmm. We talked about access. That's a big one. So I'll move on from that. But I do want to plug it in there. Um, Having areas for food plots, if you're going to have uh, private land, and control it in order to develop those patterns. It is key for you to have the food and control that food. And when I'm talking about this, this is, these are fall food plots. These are not agricultural fields. Don't say I have a, um, you know, there's a neighbor's lease that has, or a neighbor's ground that has ag field or whatever. I'm talking, you know, our our fall food plots for hunting. And within that, if you, the property you just described, you touched on it, and that's one that's very common is 100% timber, which you can still work with that as long as you have some areas that maybe have the right slopes. You know, so I'll look at it not to say I don't disqualify it because it has 100% timber because you may be able to have a timber project, get paid to do it. Yep. And yep. clear off, let's say you have, you know, even 10% of the area within that property has the potential for food plots. Not that that's how much we would plant, but you know, you have ground that you can work with and say this has a slope that's suitable for uh, clearing out for a food plot, that is something that we can work with. You know we can we can look at it and say that's it's a little bit longer commitment. You know, you're maybe you're not going to get a logger till next season or whatever the case may be, but that's okay. You can look at it and say that's a problem we can solve. So a lot of these, uh, there's no perfect property. Every mm-hmm. property, if you look down this list, is going to have something that you'd pause on and say, yeah, that's not great, but we can here's how we can work with it. Um, but if you have that property that has, it's 100% slope and it doesn't have anywhere you can do that, that's one that I have a tough time getting by, you know, and yeah. say that that's one I would probably let go.
1: Yeah. So what about, uh, if I bought a, a low lying area? So for instance, there was a, 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 piece of property close to me that had connections to larger pieces of timber on either side of it, mm-hmm. but it was surrounded for the most part by ag fields mm-hmm. and it was all marsh lowland, mm-hmm. um, what are you going to do with a property like that? So, um, one, is there a way to get a food plot in there? Like, can you do anything with that? And, and two, how are you going to start to set that up for hunting? Because not a lot of trees.
2: Yeah. The first thing I'm going to do with that is, uh, dive into, um, more detail of the topography. So if, you know, each of us sits here and pulls up on looks at the, the map or any other topo map, a lot of times those are 10 foot lines that are, um, not going to help you in that situation. You know, you'd see 10 foot topography. That's great when you're in hill country, but you get down in these lowland parcels and all of a sudden you are lost looking at that. The whole thing just looks flat. Yep. It's not. You get what you need to do, go on like a County GIS website. You start to get those one or two foot topo maps. Uh, you get a lot of the overlays of soils of uh, wetlands of, you know, these various, uh, types of designations that are out there and you can start to understand what it is before you even go look at it you know a lot of times you get in those parcels you could you'd have to grid the whole thing out to really understand where it's at whereas if you have that one or two foot topo map you can walk out there and say hey these areas are only four feet five feet in elevation different that's all the difference in the world and that kind of, par- that kind of parcel. Yep. You get, out, yeah, you get out there and you, you find all of a sudden you find that's where the vegetation is. That's where things are growing. And you know, there's bedding, there's maybe a chance for a food plot in those situations. So yeah. And those properties, it's the more, of the more I look at those, the more I think they're fascinating is because you can, uh, you can really get into these and find some of those specific points. And then all of that marsh, all of that maybe it's open water or whatever very much defines travel throughout the throughout the property such that you can start to look at it and leverage it. And the example you just gave of having say timber on either side of it, and this is a pass through between the two, you know, that's a whole other type of property is looking at something to say we don't necessarily have uh, everything here we would want if we were isolating this property. But again, getting back to what we said before, we look beyond just that property. Yep. So one of the things you just brought up with is those one and two
1: foot topo maps. Mm-hmm. Uh, you did a post recently on Instagram and put that on there. And I had never really looked real close at, at uh, some of those maps. And it, it is, it is remarkable. The amount of detail that you can really get into on, on some of those pieces. Like I, mm-hmm. I had no clue that that kind of uh, detail was available.
2: Yeah. So what is great and, and it's really uh, grown so much, even in the last five years, Uh, it's come from nothing in 10 years, is the GIS websites that are out there that are public. um, Just go and Google your county name and GIS, and it'll pop up. It's a mapping program that most uh, areas have. And within that, you're going to find not just TOPO, but so much else uh, you're going to see. the various uh, like i mentioned soils but also you can get overlays from some of them the last 100 years wow. i mean you can go back in time and say oh wow this was tiled out in the 70s and it was draining really well then and they had these this this ditching here and all this and that and it came along 10 years ago and plugged that up and okay well, i see what's going on now and have a better understanding of what's happened over the course of time you can really be a detective on your own property going back through those images, through those layers, and have a firm understanding of what happened without even setting foot on it.
1: Wow. So let's jump in now to a little bit of how are we setting some uh, habitat and harvest goals that are realistic for a property? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talked about some of the big things that we're looking for, and I don't think it's a secret at this point. We want food, we want cover, we want good uh, defined travel in between. Like those are those are pretty uh, pretty clear cut and 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 pretty much out there for everybody to to hear and know mm-hmm. at this point. But what are some of the things that you start taking into account as a landowner is setting goals for himself? Let's say he's you know I've got a goal I want to shoot uh, three and a half or older deer, or I want to take X number of does off the property, or I want to have a strong turkey population because turkey hunting is you know a close second to me to whitetails or something like that. Mm-hmm
2: yeah so with that and really should have brought this up from the beginning with why because you know we automatically think deer hunting and bucks and all this stuff you know but that is part of that first part is understanding what is realistic because if someone wants to have that 3 year old plus uh, you know buck as uh, their is is what they're looking for they may be looking in completely the wrong area and don't know it you know if mm. they're if they're looking in you know wherever far northern wisconsin and and their expectation is to shoot a booner, they may not be correlated, you know, sure. and, and it's and, and not to say that those don't exist there. They certainly do, but there are areas where that's more common. And I think it's yep. understanding even through some basics of historical harvest records and, you know, what their expectation is and helping them set that accurately. Because there's people that would say, you know, I've, I've had that hunt. I, I've enjoyed that, but now my focus is changing. It's going to be whatever I mentioned, you know, the grandkids or family or this or that. And, and that type of hunt to set up for them, not only in helping them have realistic harvest goals for their property, but also the types of setups that we put them on um, are going to be correlated uh, to what those things are. Are, are these properties that um, guys are
1: looking at or looking for or, or that you're setting up mostly, let's say, um, are you dealing a lot with people who, who say, I'm only going to be here to hunt the nine day general firearm season, or are you mostly dealing with guys who say, I'm going to be here all season long. I'm going to take a bow. As soon as firearm season opens up, I'm going to be taking a firearm. How, how does that look and, and break down? And I'm curious maybe, uh, if how that may inform the purchase of a property. If I want to, if I'm a, if I'm a strictly a gun hunter, mm-hmm. I take 10 days of vacation every year for gun season but I really don't have time to devote a lot of time to bow hunting. So I just don't worry about it. How's it going to inform the kind of property?
2: Right. So the, the type of hunter is pivotal to what ground is good for them. Okay. You know, and in yep. the types of setup. So um, also in the design of how they, we, we set up these hunts, if you know, the, if somebody's just going to be purely a rifle hunter, which, and to answer your question, it's, I usually am dealing, uh, most of the clients have at least some aspect of bow hunting if it's covering the whole season, and then some of which are only bow hunters. Um, but they are really wanting to uh, try to have the, the right setups for also the right part of the season. So there's different stands, different setups for uh, different parts of the season in any property. You're going to you know look at if, or whether it's early season, mid, brought late, all these different things. And also how that correlates specifically here in our state with the types of seasons that we have, mm, you know, yep. those might be good, you know, and also I think it's partly education too, and helping people understand, well, if you've loved rifle hunting, you may really also like muzzleloader, you know, that's a, you know, 10 day season that follows our nine day gun season yep. and what yep. a great time, especially if you have private land, you get that early snowstorm. you have control the food. You have all these. You have this setup that's really putting you in the right spot for that season that was right next to the one you've enjoyed your whole life, and you just didn't realize it was there. I just got fired up about muzzleloader hunting. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, with that. Yeah, just just with that little intro, I'm like,
1: oh man, I control the. Yeah, okay. Yeah,
2: and and muzzleloader really. I I grew up. uh, My start was in the firearm season, and but you know, getting introduced to muzzleloader, it was no one's around. It's quiet. You get this extended. Uh, season of essentially of uh, you know with firearms and um, but then you throw the food into there and it really can get interesting if you get some weather. Wow,
1: wow. Let's let's jump into a little bit about your process and then I've got uh, a, a question about mistakes <laughs> that that landowners can make or that you've seen people make. Um, let's talk your process though. So the first thing I imagine somebody's going to reach out to you. You're probably going to do a phone consultation, mm-hmm. right? Where we're
2: answering some of those. What'd you say? 60? Well, yeah. So if you're talking about the, uh, um, buying a property, yeah, that there's a checklist for that as far as how we go through and help them really discover what they're looking for in the property, as well as what that property has to offer for them. So yeah, that's the, on the purchasing side, on the, um, habitat hunting design side, that's a whole nother process as far as getting to know them and, um, whether it's going to be, uh, in person, uh, on site, or also I do that virtually too, for people who, um, you know, either further out from the areas I'm covering, or maybe that's just the, um, all they need to have is, is to have a little bit of, um, Q and a session and going through some of the design ideas. Maybe it's reviewing what they already have and we can do that on, on, on the computer on zoom. Okay. Um, but anyway, getting more specifically into that, uh, uh, habitat design process, what that entails is first of all, just like you say, the phone consultation, Hey, you know, what have you had? you okay. You, you just bought it or you've had it for many years and getting to know them. Some of the questions we've gone through here, you know, cause it, it does correlate obviously with the, um, you know, the same mentality of buying land versus then setting it up. It's some of those same questions, but it's understanding who they are and, um, what they want to put into the land and, you know, uh, once we go out there then, so usually we get to know all those preliminaries of how they're hunting, the successes, failures they've had, or maybe it's brand new to them, and then going out and uh, scouting the land. So it's going and uh, basically walking the entire property and getting to see it in detail so that we can we can learn it, understand it, and um, along the way, along that process, going through the uh, principles of, of habitat design, of uh of uh, you know, the improvements that they're going to make and talk about, you know, a lot of different things along the way. And then my process is going back, developing that plan, uh, developing that report, all the specifics of what they need to do. And within that, you know, I've gone, I've transitioned a lot. I used to write uh, just pages and pages and pages of these reports, but I've gone now to doing video content of, of you know, I'll just basically record a session of me Talking over the plan and explaining it, and you know, advising them on how to hunt, how to do this and that, um, and that's that's put within the report of those links that I have for those videos. Okay, so rather than rather than doing a long
1: written report, are you right. are you seeing people feel like they can grasp that a little bit easier? Yeah. So
2: it's it's a presentation essentially. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm on a little bubble on the screen and and talking over the plan, and I go through element by element. And some of these plans have 200 elements on them. You know, you're going to go in and okay, this. This is a travel route from A to B, and here's why it's here. It's, this is the position on the slope. This is how it's intended to function. The mock scrape and water hole that are here. This is why we put them here and not over here. And mm. the stand is right, you know, in this location. And we, this is how we're going to access it because that's going to allow you to not be invasive into the in and cross this travel route, yep. and basically just go through step by step and explain it. So yeah, more presentation style rather than you can imagine putting that into words. It is. Uh, pages and pages and chapters of, uh, upon chapters.
1: Yeah, I imagine that's way more digestible. Oh, of and, course. Yeah, I figured that out pretty quick. Yeah, <laughs> well, and I, and I assume uh, not to not to speak ill, but I, I bet a lot of guys get that book that you wrote and say, "Wait, I I don't. Yeah, I'm not gonna read this." Like I yeah. said, I, I learned that pretty on,
2: uh, pretty early on. That say, "Well, this was all great, but could you come here and explain it to me, or or have a call, or whatever?" And um, yeah, so that style of all these embedded videos of of you know explaining each piece by piece of what's going on and, and doing more and more of that it is for the report specifically for that person it's designed you know tailored to that property because yep. um, as we've said with everything here everything is is fit custom to what they who they are what the land is and how those two come together
1: yeah what what is start to finish uh, let's say I call you mm-hmm. um, we're right here in it's March 1st actually as we're, we're sitting down recording this. It's March first. Not a ton of snow on the ground. I call you today. I say, hey, can you meet me out there this weekend? You're probably going to say no because I'm busy. But but when I do get you out there, right? And um, you know, we've gone through what I'm looking to get out of the property. You come out and do a site visit. Um, what does the turnaround time look like before I can expect to get a report back?
2: Yeah, yeah. So like you say, right now we're pretty much booked up through the through green up. You know, that, as that um, most of us who do this. Um, regularly are, you know, filled up through and until it's green up. I do advise people there's some type of properties that after green up can be successful in those on-site visits. But I think generally what I would do is steer them more towards getting some advising to get them through this year, and then we we plan it for postseason um, as far as the the green up uh, time frame goes. But anyway, back to your question is I once I uh, spend a day with them on the property, and some some properties might take longer than a day if they're very large, uh, but go through that time. And, uh, you know, we, we talk about some things right then and there they could start doing, but generally when I'm retreating back to my office and making the plan or report and all that, uh, I have a pretty quick turnaround, usually one to two weeks is is what I'm having to get that, uh, report or the plan report back to those people. And are these people doing all the, the, the work
1: I'm assuming you're, you're writing almost like a prescription. for for their property, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, these people walk away with quite a bit of work to do depending on on their property. Are they working within other companies to come in and accomplish some of this work? Is it sweat equity?
2: What does that look like? Well, I've seen both. Uh, One of the things that I do though, to help them because it, it is a, it is for many a several year process, even though the biggest impacts can be made with a smaller percentage of the work for sure, um, is, uh, make it a list of priorities, you know, and I have a video on that, talk through, you know, here's the top 10 things to do in year one, wow. you know, going through and saying, these are the, these are the things that you can focus on and um, really have a big impact right away. And then beyond that, having a annual calendar, and maybe you've seen some of my posts with that, but just, it, you know, every month of the year, there's something that can be done. And that's uh, what we try to focus on is getting, uh, them aware of the things they can be working on and how that translates to their plan.
1: That's great. So you give them like a step-by-step and really help them prioritize the pieces yeah, rather than just having them walk away with, uh, you know, the 68 things they need to do.
2: Well, it can be overwhelming looking at a plan. There's a lot of detail there. And anyone who's worked hard at developing habitat knows it's never done. Yep. You know, you're, you're constantly working at things. But having an idea of where to focus to get the biggest bang for your buck and, you know, all that... Um, you know, whether they're doing it or someone else is doing it, there's still things that do take time, you know, that there's plantings that you to, to grow and all that. But, um, you know, generally stated it's, if somebody works hard at it, they can have a, a huge impact and a successful season, even in that first year.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's pivot a little bit now. Mm -hmm. So these guys who have come to you, they're walking away with this plan. They can implement some things pretty quickly. Again, to impact their success right away. There's a lot of content, though, that's out there on on YouTube. And a lot of it's really good content. I don't want to yeah, say that the right content up. is not good. Um, sometimes the execution of said content may not be there. Or uh, sometimes the, the content is partial because the people who produce this content are also habitat managers. And they want to come to your property and help you put together a plan for your own piece right and so I think a lot of guys buy a piece of property and decide you know what I'm gonna start managing this they don't call somebody like you they just jump in and start doing things and I bet some of them get themselves in a little bit of trouble uh, what are some of the mistakes that you see guys making on on
2: their properties I think one of the most common is you know people can maybe watch a one-off video and figure a one-off improvement. I'm going to watch this food plot video. I'm going to go out there and make a food plot. Great. Okay. You've made a successful food plot. It's an attraction. Um, Well, is that attraction where you want it? So first of all, it's that Mm. the location of those things. If your food plot is in a location that you are immediately on day one, going to go out and hunt and blow it up and make it no good, at least for several weeks and and, and to let that recover, um, it's going to be an unsuccessful improvement. Yeah. Um, so I'd say um, doing an improvement and not recognizing the effects of that, you know you put a food plot right next to you know, your access route and, and that's a way you can mess it up. The other thing is maybe you get that one right. Um, and, and you have a few different improvements, but I think the next thing is how they relate to each other. Is it a system? You know, do you have things interconnected with a thought-out plan as to how are you going to have the deer flow through the property and how are you yourself, the hunter, going to access that and are those in conflict? Because if they're in conflict, and not just, you know, do you bump a deer on the way in, but maybe do you leave scent in a place that you didn't want to, you know, something that simple is, you know, do those things relate to each other? And the the system within itself too is, you know, there's there whether it's big, Concepts of food and bedding and travel um, are those connected in such a way that are logical and going to be successful uh, for that property.
1: Yeah, so l- let's let's jump into a couple of those specifics then. Like, I, I want to hit some of the high points and and I want to hit one that's been pretty controversial in the whitetail habitat world, uh, and and that is hinge cutting. I've talked to some guys. A buddy of mine just the other day was saying, "Hey, I've, I've been doing some hinge cutting." So and it's it's popular a lot of people are using it uh, but i've also seen some others who are just like this is not a tool you should ever use on your property and you do some hinge cutting mm-hmm. correct jump into that for me a little bit okay. i understand what some of these guys are saying when they say hinge cutting is not a tool you should use what they what they mean and what they should clarify is improper hinge cutting and hinge cutting done willy-nilly is not good and you should never use any tool willy-nilly like if I bring a hammer into my into this room that we're in right now and I start swinging it around I might bust the window out. That, that's not a problem with the hammer. Right? right. Like it's a problem yeah. with my use of said hammer. So talk to me a little bit about hinge cutting, maybe what some of the people are
2: saying against it and why you like it. Sure. Hinge cutting, I don't know, I think it's controversial because people choose for it to be, but the uh, you know it's a tool like you just said. And uh, I think it has great use in um, you know, two, I'll talk about two specific things. So one is, you know, travel routes. We're going to develop, uh, travel from A to B and to try and funnel that we have perpendicular cuts to that line of travel we're trying to make. So you put cut, you put a tree down either side of that path in a perpendicular direction and it's going to funnel deer between them. You know, that's just kind of a basic concept. Well, if there's not an, I mean, a big thing is looking up. If there's not enough daylight getting into that forest, that tree is, unless it's shade tolerant and that's a species specific thing, but uh, is likely to die, you know, if it doesn't have enough light. Um, And also how is it cut? I could go into that for a little while too on the, you know, is it, you know, have you overcut it? Have you um, cut it at the wrong time of year? You know, people love to talk about hinge cutting, but if you're going out in the dead of winter when it's five below zero and cutting trees, you're going to shatter them. You know, and it's, it's some of that too, are the wrong tools, not having wedges, not having a small saw, a hook, all these. Talk about those a little bit. You, you posted
1: on Instagram the other day. It's just, and I got to say listeners, if, if you have not checked out the Whitetail Partners Instagram yet, you need to, because there's constantly good stuff on there. And you posted the tools that you would need for hinge cutting. You showed a, a good hinge cut as opposed to a bad hinge cut. Uh, You showed exactly basically how the tool, I mean, you showed people using the tools and how, how, how that would work. And I thought it was fantastic. So go into that just a little bit and and what makes a good hinge cut.
2: Sure. Great. Um, so the proper tools when going out there, first of all, the saw, you don't want to have your firewood saw, your, you know, the heaviest saw you have laying in the shop. (laughs) You want a small saw. A lot of guys use arborist tiny, you know, the, the very small chainsaw, even electric saws. You want to have something that's very easily controlled even a handsaw, something if you're doing even really small trees, you want the precision and the um, control of a smaller saw mm. getting out there and uh, making that cut in a way that you're not overcutting it. Because one inch of extra cut could be the difference in that tree living or dying. Wow. And, okay. and so a good cut, um, that's, you know, control is the first part. Um, if it's a bigger tree, it's nice to have some wedges and, you know, the felling wedge that's used to, you know, promote the tree to fall over and, and hammering that in there, that, that little bit of leverage, uh, at the bottom makes a huge difference at the top and trying to get that tree to come over. So in general, you want to go out there with the mindset of, I want to wrestle this tree down. I want to pull it down. I don't want it to fall. If that, if you cut it so far that that tree is falling, you overcut it. Mm -hmm. And with that, um, the hook or habitat hook is a common, uh, one that's out there. Uh, it, awesome tool. Get the longest one that you can, you can, and I, I recommend the aluminum one too, because it's lighter. Again, I mentioned that with a saw, lightweight tools are very important, uh, for fatigue. The type more tired we get, uh, the sloppier we are with our work. This is not a sloppy operation. You know, you get out there, uh, two guys is the best way to do this by far is because you have one guy on the on the saw and the other guy pulling on the hook and working together, you're not, you're, if you're doing it by yourself, you're going to be tempted to overcut, mm-hmm. you know, uh, cut a little bit more so that then I can go pull it down and have a successful cut that way. And that's not what you want. I think ideally it's a two man, uh, two man affair as far as the, the operation goes. Okay.
1: What are some of the trees that are good candidates for hinge cutting? Cause I know not every tree
2: uh, is effectively hinge cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so well, many of the hardwoods we have in our state are very good. I would say just as a broad statement for the state of Wisconsin, a lot of the hardwoods we have are great. Um, you may want to be protective of your white oaks, especially as far as their uh, future and acorn potential. Um, but I, I'll hinge them if that's the tree I want to hinge. Okay. Um, even in red oaks too, and all that. So many of those hardwoods are very good. The uh, ones that are not, like a a popple or the, any of the softwoods are not going to be good conifers and so on. That's not going to be a successful cut. Um, but, um, some of the best I like, you know, box elder is awesome. It just bends over like a rubber band, um, bark, hickory, elm. Those are all ones that go really well. Maple, not as much. Maple's a little more brittle. You get a tree that's much bigger than six inch diameter and there's a good chance it's going to want to snap when it's coming down. Mm, okay. Now are you doing this hinge cutting, Uh, primarily for
1: a travel route kind of thing, or are you also using hinge cutting for bedding? And are you even potentially using that to create pockets of denser brows in an area? Yeah.
2: So all of the above. And okay, okay, I talked about that briefly before and I'll cover the rest is the um, perpendicular cuts on a travel route to try and funnel that deer. Again, we're always looking for sunlight in these situations, or maybe if they're depending on the species, there's ones that are going to be more shade tolerant, but um, in a bedding area. So, it that sunlight's really critical to get uh, as much in as we can and also to get uh, a lot of good side cover. So, the first thing you're going to do in that situation, let's say you're going to make a quarter or a third acre area, is to look around and maybe take out some of those bigger canopy trees. Hmm. The bigger trees, you want to get them down first. You always take your bigger ones down first because if you hinge first, you're going to smash them. So, bring the big trees down first, got to get a you know, get the area clear of what you, you know, looking up that you got the sunlight, um, uh, coming in there then, and then those medium and lower story trees are going to hinge those in that bedding area, uh, such that you're opening up maybe 75% of that to daylight and allowing it to, to get good light into that bedding area, because that's what makes the browse. Yep. That's, that's what makes that, all that, those hinge cuts you made, um, allows it to, uh, continue growing and it's all at deer level at that point. And then, yeah, they're, they're, you know, all that side sprouts that occur, the stump sprouts, all that, that's just all really great browse. And then it's going to be bedding area because of you selected it based on topography and, um, you know, proximity to food and some of these other things we're going to consider in a design. You know, we placed that where we wanted to place it, but um, that's what makes those hinge cuts successful is getting that light in. Um, and was there one more? Uh, no, I, I think that was, that was it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's primarily it. Um, you know, larger bedding blocks. So like I did a five acre, a timber harvest on my property this year where we're, it's right in the middle of the property and we're looking to have it be, to be bedding, but also just, you know, a, a really large area of browse and just hold up a lot of deer. So we took out really almost all the canopy. I mean, there's 20% left. Um, some of our larger story, um, red oaks that we left, but we took quite a few of them out, and we're going to go through now and actually, um, we're not going to hinge as much. And so this is a good example of that: is we're going to work on uh, the brows that would already already be there, um, and that's all that this, this new generation coming up. You know, all the the early successional growth, and um, and also we'll do we'll do plantings in there too. We'll do conifers, not, not obviously not for brows, but just for thermal cover and bedding and all that. But you know we're going to cut down probably a lot of the understory maples that were there because we don't want those to be our long-term trees, as well as that making new sprouts and and all that. And we'll we'll also be doing some hardwood plantings in there as well.
1: What what makes a an area? What makes you come to an area and say, you know what? Rather than uh, trying to hinge cut uh, a sizable chunk here, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take this to the ground. Uh, maybe I'm even gonna terminate some of these some of these trees.
2: Yeah. So. Part of that gets into um, forestry management too, which is it. I'll be honest, that isn't my strong suit. I work with a local forester who's more knowledgeable on this, and he advises me too. and to say, you know, because it is an eye to the future of what do we want to do for this timber as well as the deer, um, and and the state has resources on that as well. But um, I work with a private forester by me, and he's um, he helped me out through that process and saying, you know, this these. It was basically a red oak stand was overgrown um, Mm. past, you know, very mature and also starting to really, it had been for a couple decades, closing out everything growing underneath it. So we had a lot of stunted white oaks and, and some other desirable species underneath that we, we looked at it and said, you know, we're no longer gaining much from these trees and, and there's also a value to take them out. So we looked at that and said it, it, but it all added up. Mm. We, we didn't we wouldn't have done this if it was in the wrong spot. You know, there, there was plenty of other areas on the farm that we could go and take trees from, but, you know, we wouldn't necessarily want to go put bedding there, so we didn't. And this is an area that we said that it all adds up. Mm-hmm. We could, you know, provide bedding. We could provide um, new growth. We could have a timber sale. We could do uh, the plantings and have uh, new habitat developing and all this, but it was also in the right spot. So that was important to make sure that we didn't, hurt ourselves by doing an improvement in the wrong location.
1: Yeah. Tell, I want to play devil's advocate just a little bit with the hinge cutting thing. Um, The primary critique that I've heard is yeah. Hinge cutting is a short term solution. Five, six, seven years. Those trees are dead. You can't do anything with it. And you just have a mess on your hands. What do you say to somebody that's sort of leveling that, that critique or, or that, or that, I think legitimate concern. Mm
2: -hmm. So, uh, partly not wrong. You know, this is this is not a long term. And when I say long term, I'm talking multiple decades long solution. Sure. Okay. So hinge cutting is it's immediate. There's good results right away. I think that's why it's a it's a popular and a successful thing that way. Yes, there's going to be benefit that way. The you know the but if you do nothing and leave it and it and then it is thick enough that it's choking out future growth. Yeah, you could have that potential for those trees reaching their maturity in that form, uh, but then, you know, not having new growth. So what I just said about all these plantings and other things we're going to do for that future growth, or you have, you know, stump sprouts from the timber harvest and all these um, good productive uh, regeneration that is about to happen. We want to spur that on in the same time so that we're not just saying this is it and it's done forever. But we're looking at that, okay, if that's, it's gonna be really successful in the short term, well, how are we helping the medium and then long range as well? Uh, so that when these do eventually be some, you know, become uh, broken down and if they do die and a lot of them will, will live well beyond that five to seven year timeframe. I mean, there's hinge cuts I have on my property that we've done that long ago and they're thriving. You wow. know, they're, okay. and they're, they're they're continuing to grow and part of that species too, I mean, just look in nature, you see a box elder lay itself down on the, on a, on the ground. And, you know, there's, it's going to grow for, you know, decades in that form. Yeah. I, I I thought that
1: was what you would, what you would say to that question. And and I, so I wanted to highlight it a little bit. I, I think a lot of the critique that has been leveled at, um, at hinge cutting is at, at the use and implementation of hinge cutting. And then people walk away. And they never touch it again, mm-hmm. but I think there's a lot that you can do. You can come in and you can do some plantings. Um, I don't know if this is something you would do, but you could run, you know, after a couple of years, most of those things have died. Run a fire through there and mm-hmm. see how that, you know, can t- continue to to, to uh, encourage new browse and new growth and mm-hmm. and keep it. I mean, you you manage, in my opinion, in my my opinion, you're the expert here, not me. But it, but in my opinion, you manage that area just like you would any other area on your property, and you make sure it's functioning and doing what. It needs to be doing, and you help it.
2: Yeah, and and you say, you know, your experience or your, or who's an expert. I would say this is we all are on our land. We mm. all you pay attention to what's going on. A year ticks by like a heartbeat. Yep. And yep. if you're if you're paying attention to how did that look last year or the year before or this and that, and you'll see even over the course of a few years, okay, I I need to help that along. I can do some plantings there to to do that to uh encourage this or i need to cut those trees down i mean we didn't come to that decision lightly we we were looking at that for a while and saying it's time and got some other advice to fill in some holes that we thought you know would be very in- intentional about that cut we we marked every tree that was to be cut it wasn't just a go you know cut this five acres we went out there and selected the trees to go wow do you if you've hinge cut an area will you go
1: in later and, and like, let's say you've got a lot of trees that have, that have died. Will you go in and remove those by hand after that? Or will you let sort of nature take its course? Uh,
2: will you burn? What will you do? Yeah. So we don't have a lot of, uh, call it failed hinge cuts or dead hinge cuts, uh, on the land. And again, we're not decades long there, but, uh, if it isn't being if it's counterproductive just for some reason it yeah we might clean some areas up I mean I think it's good to look at bedding areas periodically and say it'd be nice to have this be a little more open if it's uh you know if if there's debris let's say laying around but Mm. back to that how to cut a bedding area you know part of that process too is making sure you got plenty of runs going in around and through it and a little you know bedding areas and physically setting those up so that you you know you have places for deer to get through it because what i described before laying all those trees down it's going to be a tangled mess but if you don't take another uh run you know uh, fill up your saw and go through it again and, and cut out little pockets and and you know actually make paths through that area too so yeah but back to looking at it and watching it over time yeah there's there's areas you might look at and say we need to clear that out we, we're going to have some some of the tops that we have from the harvest we're going to be working on those for a few years just because we want to clean up some of those piles and not have them around, but that's, they aren't, um, bad that you, you know, they aren't hurting anything about the habitat. There's some things that are productive about them too, but there's, you know, enough of them in areas that we want to clean it up a little bit. And that's where some of that comes into owner preference too. Yep. Yep.
1: Let's talk a little bit about depth of cover, uh, and where you're going to be placing, um, some of this bedding that's one of the things that I've heard and seen talked about uh, by guys like Jeff Sturgis and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And um, it's always been a little bit of a mystery to me uh, as, you know, a guy who maybe would want to buy 40 or 60 acres. How do I get the most depth of cover? Because there, there seems to be two different trains of thought. I had, uh, I had uh, Dr. Grant Woods on, I recorded with him the other day. and We were talking about habitat for turkeys mm-hmm. specifically, but I know he sort of, Uh, takes one approach to where he likes to place his cover. Jeff Sturgis likes to take a a different approach, almost almost opposite. They're almost opposite of each other where they want their food and where they want their cover. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell me a little bit about how you're setting up, uh, um, I I guess you'd call it zones of cover, heading back from, you know,
2: hunting locations. Right. So um, it starts at the food. Obviously, we, you know... Those of us who had food plots, we've known and seen, and you're going to hear some of those folks talk about the the doughs being right on the food, and it's true. You know, they're they're piled up right there, and you want to have good bedding immediate to those areas. How um, far are we talking when you say immediate? Yeah, I mean on it, like on it. Okay, yeah, I mean, five from anywhere from zero to. 40 yards off of that food plot, the does are going to be bedded, you know, and and yeah, they'll continue to bed further back than that, but provide bedding opportunities for them there. You know, I have a rim of switchgrass around uh, my food plots and I'm going to be planting, now that I have that established, um, I'm going to be planting conifers into that switchgrass five yards off the food because I want them to start growing up. I mean, those deer will bed, you know, five yards off of that food plot if I'd let them. And I'm going to try and let them, you know. <laughs> so anyway, the more you can do that immediately for those does and and uh, smaller bucks, that's absolutely true. And then, you know, your depth of cover, I explain that, and people have heard this concept before, but, you know, the distance from your food, you know, to the backside of of your farthest bedding or farthest cover is, is what it is. And um, what we want to do is, you know, work work our way back into that cover and have more bedding opportunities. Maybe that's where your bucks are going to start to bed. They're going to, they aren't going to want to be next to those doles. They will want to be further back. And one of the ways that you can mess that up is by dropping another food plot in, you know, and I think that's that's one of the concerns I always have. So if you have a food plot that you're dropping back into cover, usually it's very small. You're going to have it be more of your kill plot. If as long, Again, if you have good access there. So part of this equation Ties into what are access points? How do you get at it, and all of that. Um, But generally speaking, if you're if you're working further back into cover, um, you're thinking of it not so much like a dead end. You know uh, that that it's you know from A to B is a defined thing, but you do want to have enough distance. And I would say, on you know generally, it's going to be at least a couple hundred yards, if not four or five hundred, to the you know that you want to get far enough back from those major food sources. Um, that you're going to have buck bedding opportunities um, because those deer do stack up like that. I've seen that firsthand and, you know, it's no wonder that the does are the first ones out into the, into the plot and those bucks are more working the way through and staging. And that's why those smaller kill plots and, um, you know, some of those other improvements like, um, like scrapes and water holes leading up to that food are important.
1: Let's talk a little bit about, um, about that access piece then. Um, what are some of the really critical things I, I imagine stand access is almost like a starting point for, for you as you're designing a property, like where can I get in and out and then design the property almost around that? Is that right? They're,
2: they're working together. I would say okay. they're, they're always kind of side by side, working through in, in hunter access. It's obviously it starts at the, at the uh, property boundary, you know, and, and that's one of the questions I'm asking people immediately is, you know, how many different places can you get in? The more they can give me, the better options we have, right? And it's not necessarily always about perimeter access, though that is certainly convenient and probably the most um, basic to set up because if you're, if you're trying to keep your access tight to the perimeter, say just, you know, picture a square in your head, you're, you're working around that perimeter, you're turning perpendicular into the property and getting in a stand, just 10 yards in how much of that property did you impact well very little right you're yep. You're, yep. you're staying on that perimeter so you're if you can have perimeter access if the topography allows it which is tough in hill country sometimes um, or or in lowland parcels too because you don't always have the ability to get to places but you know if if you can have that and maintain perimeter access great sometimes though if it's a larger property especially you might have um, an interior access that gets to to gets at, at various stands but Um, for the most part, generally speaking, uh, you know, that perimeter access, then, then you're working with the improvements on the inside of that. So you want to kind of keep on the outside and not that the deer don't cross between, but you know, that in general, you'll, you want to be working, you know, parallel to the property boundaries with those deer, you know, you want to have them be moving throughout your property in a parallel fashion, but you want to come at it, uh, perpendicularly for the hunt.
1: Yeah. How do you encourage... And I'm sure this is, there's a long list. How do you encourage that parallel movement and discourage that perpendicular movement on the
2: part of the deer? Sure. So that's all those improvements that I mentioned. So food plots, you know, we, we, you basically think of it as all of these improvements are pieces of the system that you're, you're laying out in such a way. And then you're connecting the dots with travel. Okay. And it's not that perfect deer might come through and be on a, on a, uh, you know, on the on the travel route for only a portion of your property and then get off your property. That's certainly gonna happen. But whether those improvements are food plots, another one we haven't talked about is trail plots, and that's, you know, these long, long lineal plots, they might be ten yards wide and they just wind through the side of a of a hill or something like that that, you know, to to take deer through an open area with good screening on the side. Um, so food plots, travel routes, you're gonna have a little uh, improvements along the way like mock scrapes, you know, and and going through your timber and eliminating the natural scrapes and getting the ones on your travel routes is a way to improve the, you know, the predictability of that travel because deer are going to want to hit that.
1: Okay. I, I got to stop you there. You just said eliminating scrapes,
2: some yes. scrapes. Yep. All
1: right. right we, I, I gotta, I gotta dive into that. I, I gotta say, I'm i I'm a public land hunter mostly. You know here. where all of them are then, right? Yeah, well, I, I'm keeping track, you know, I, I work really, right. really hard. To try to figure out where the, um, what I would call the the primary scrapes or, you right. know, whatever. The, the ones that the deer really, really like. It has never crossed my mind to
2: eliminate a scrape. Sure. Tell me about that. Well, it's pretty simple. Just like uh, on private land with food plots, you can control where you put that food. You control what they're going to. Similarly with the mock scrapes, as it co- as it corresponds to your travel routes, if you can, um, you have, let's call them random or um, you know, scrapes that relate to other patterns. Yep. You don't want that pattern. That's a pattern you don't want. I, you know, I, I usually always have a saw in my pocket when I'm walking around, especially this time of year, if I see a scrape from the hunting season that I don't, I don't like, I'm cutting down that licking branch. I'm getting rid of it because I want them to use the ones I've put in there, which are now, you know, many years old and, just heavily beat in the ground. I mean, the, the scrape on the ground looks like a, you know, a tub. It's just been rounded out so much, you know, and, and then the vines that we use or other branches we use, it it's that we hang down in that spot. Um, those get abused and need to be replaced year to year. So you're maintaining those. So the whole concept there is you've decided where these are going to be. And, uh, coincidentally, there's a tree stand 25 yards away (laughs) and, and, uh, you know, you deer get. More trained or I guess it gets more trained to be on that pattern. Yep. You know, just my success this past season, the buck I killed, um, I have a picture of him at a water hole in Mox Grape, seven hundred yards away on a corridor that I shot I shot him on that same corridor fifteen minutes later. Wow. So he traveled seven hundred yards across the property. At what time of year was this? October twenty fifth. Oh, so October twenty. So he was covering yeah, some he's, serious ground. He's laying and, down a lot of a lot of sign, you know, this is that pre-rut, uh, and really that's my favorite time to hunt because everything I just described, that's when it's being exercised. That is the, um, network that they have to lay down their, you know, call it communication throughout the, uh, throughout their range. And there he's going from spot to spot to spot. And that's exactly what happened.
1: You know, this is a consistent thing that I'm hearing from guys who are able to, to manage their own properties, and to do things like have mock scrapes and watering holes and those sorts of things and really try to um, dictate to some extent the best they can uh, what the bucks are doing is that that uh, 24th, 25th, 26th of October is some of their best hunting. Yeah, it, and, and, you know, I'm out. I, I've got cameras all over the place on local public lands. And I, I see more daytime movement during that. Mm -hmm. But I would say that's far from the best hunting. I have the best hunting and the best movement the second week of November. Mm -hmm. And so what is it about, about habitat improvements and about the, the the tools that you guys are able to utilize that makes that last week, last 10 days of October so special. Yeah.
2: and, And you hit the nail on the head there. That is, that is the sweet spot as far as the, what I would call the pre rut. So when they're laying down all kinds of scent, and sign and, and covering a lot of ground doing it, so it's the precursor to the chase. You know the which is when you're seeing your activities yep. because they're really yep. covering ground and looking for that next doe and all that stuff. And and we all love those days that first you know that first hot doe in the woods and you know it's like the woods just lights up because the bucks are just everywhere. Well, but when they're everywhere, they're not necessarily on that defined pattern on that scrape on that location, yep. which yep. is what we're trying to leverage on these you know design setups is exactly that i had this buck on any one of my cameras on these scrapes at at various times and i knew and and this actually goes back a few years so this buck i knew i had an opportunity for this that week like I, i i knew that that buck that week because of who he is and what he did he loved to cover ground and lay down sign and and here now being five and a half years old i had you know, last several years of him doing this activity, I have daylight pictures of him on October, whatever, 22nd through the 30th uh, consistently the last several years in daylight. Wow. So you're a big believer in the
1: year to year activity as well. That's something I've recently started keying in on and uh, it is, it is held true.
2: Absolutely. So I'm, uh, you know, the bucks I'm most excited about now are those two and three-year-olds that I see in daylight on these patterns and I'm just kind of sitting back and starting to watch them because I know that they're the four and five-year-olds to be whatever you know we're going to hunt that uh they're the they're the ones you know that's that's I I really like seeing them because it's I'm looking for that pattern as far as trail camps go it's um it's you know we all love them we will go out there and Look, you know, look at the pictures and all this and that, and 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 yeah, there's some current in year uh, relevance and intelligence and all that. I'm not gonna deny it. I mean, especially sure. with cell cams, it's okay. They're active, this and that. But specifically, what I like to look at is what I just said, and, and so much of it because we know the land so well and everything else that yeah, the cameras are they're enjoyable, but they're not. It, it's it's not something we need to have because we know the pattern depending on the week of the, whatever month it is, what, what's going on,
1: man. Let, let's jump in just a little bit then to the, um, to some of these, these travel routes that you're creating. And you mentioned just a second ago, the like travel plots, is that how, what'd you, I call them trail plots, yeah. trail plots. Mm-hmm. Okay. Those are you're, you're using
2: primarily for open areas. Is that right? Right. So th- because of the nature of, of what they are is it's having, trying to connect a area within an open field. So let's say you have a a crossing in a valley you know you have a existing ag field that's got a valley that's maybe the field is 150 or 200 yards across it's it's an open area that the deer are going to be less interested in being in in the daylight okay and what what the travel plot does is it's it's something they're going to be working through so you're still connecting in, in the case on my land i have it dumping out on a from a corridor from the woods, from the travel route from the woods, and it just side hills all the way back to my main food plot uh, in the back, and it it basically lets the deer dump out at any point along that timber. They get into that plot, and then they're going to work towards the big plot. And so it, it helps transition deer through the property and create flow, and also it helps me with my hunter access because one of my main routes into the property is just um, about 30 yards off of this and it parallels that plot so I have screened in between myself and that plot so it's very frequent that I'm walking out at night and if I really looked hard between the plot screen and tried to see what was there there's deer 30 yards away on that on that travel plot um, you know that I'm walking right past as I leave the land and they're letting you do it oh yeah because they feel secure well that yeah that the amount of screening so there's 10 yards of whatever, 12 foot, 14 foot tall screen between me and them. And then another 20 yards of, of switchgrass. So there's a lot of sound and sight dampening that um, really prevents them from knowing I'm even there. Wow. Wow.
1: Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. It's kind of like drinking out of a fire hose. There are 87 more topics that I would like to ask you about, but we uh, unfortunately have real jobs and uh, have to do those too today. But, is there something that from a high level view that I haven't brought up that I should introduce to this conversation? I mean, you're, you're, you're more knowledgeable about this than I am. So is there anything that I've left out that you're like, Hey, we really should cover this as part of this conversation?
2: Well, we, we certainly have covered a lot. Um, and, and great to talk about, you know, the purchasing a property, starting to develop it and all that. But I think, you know, one of the common mistakes that I see people make is, just sitting, just sitting back and, and staying on the sideline and, and not moving mm. forward on things. And, and I just want to encourage those people wherever they're at is to say, what is that next step? You know, maybe it's maybe it's buying a smaller property and just getting started on that. You can do so much in just a, uh, the first few years that, you know, even getting that experience on a very small property, maybe it's more convenient to be have it close to your home and you want to work on that. Go buy that property and, and start working on it. You'll learn something. And it'll make you ready for the next one. Yeah, so maybe I am. Maybe I maybe I'm interested in
1: buying a very small property as just kind of a first one. I know this isn't the one that I'm going to build on or anything like that long term. But maybe I want to buy a property, uh, sell that property, roll over, roll those right. funds into a larger property that will you know maybe work my way up into something that um, I want to be in long term. What's the size you'd recommend a guy starting with? And, and I, I know it's going to vary by neighborhood. It's going to vary by terrain, lots and lots and lots of different variables, but I'm going to guess that as a general rule, you're not going to say, start with half an acre.
2: Sure. And I'm going to guess as a general rule, you're going to, you're not going to say, well, you have to have a hundred. That's right. No. And, and uh great question so, I mean, somebody can buy 10 acres and go learn about deer habitat and have some improvements and, and gain a wealth of knowledge. So okay. you can you can have a very small property and do this. I mean, there's some people out there that might have a, you know, six or eight acre property with their house on it. And they look at their woods a whole lot differently now after this conversation and say, maybe there's some things you can do. That's absolutely true. And, you know, looking beyond your property, what else is there? Because that's, so, that's just as important as what you have. Um, as far as the upper size of that range, I would say that, you know, I'd, I'd rather look and have the right 30 or 40 than say I have enough budget for a 60 or 80, Mm -hmm. you know, you can buy a smaller piece of ground and have it be, uh, more efficient and more leverage for quality hunting than a much larger piece of ground. You know, people can go out there and buy a 200 acre property. Uh, There's, there's some 200 acre properties that I wouldn't trade for my 40 you know like i i i know what i have and it's set up really well but it's you know there's different things to look at to say it's better to have the right the right size than to get something that you know you just needed more acres sure w- where would you say you start to see some of that
1: success come in so you know a guy can a guy can take his 5 and manage it well but he's going to be more limited mm-hmm. would you say um, generally you start to see a lot of return on your on your work and on your labor at
2: the 20 acre range 30 acre range that yeah absolutely right so okay. that, to, to to dial it in and say if you can do it yeah to get 20 or 30 and, and then again it comes to shape and yep. some of those things too but you're get you know there's there's certain buffers you need for access for you know we talked about depth of cover and the distance to between food and bedding and some of these things you start to add that up and it just doesn't work on a 10 acre property, a 10 acre, 20 acre property. You're going to say, I'm going to do some of these improvements. Maybe it's a pass through movement and you can have success there, but you're very reliant upon your neighbors. Yep. Um, and you still are at 30 or 40, but you may be able to keep a lot of those features and have it be a setup in a way that combined with your access, you can still hunt it very efficiently. Okay. Awesome. Well, Sam, if if people want to get a hold of you, want to find
1: out more from you, want to see some of the stuff that we've been talking about today uh for instance like some of the things that you're putting on instagram where can they find you
2: yeah so instagram facebook is uh at whitetail partners and the website is whitetailpartners.com
1: awesome well sam thank you so much for coming on this episode i really would like to have you on again and uh, pick your brain a little bit further maybe we'll pick a topic and just dive all into it that sounds great well thanks for having me And that's all for this week's episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast. Big thanks to Sam for coming on the episode. Uh, Looking forward to connecting with him again because, like I said in the intro, I feel like we just scratched the surface on a lot of these topics. Also, big thanks to you, the listener, for following along with us. If you'd like to keep up with more of what we're doing on a day-to-day basis, you can follow us on Instagram or on Facebook. Until next time, make sure you're doing everything you can to get outside and take advantage of the incredible resource that is ours as Wisconsin's sportsman.